Okay, well, let's uh, begin with a word of prayer and we'll get into tonight's study. Let's pray. Father, thank you for again gathering us together tonight. We do pray, continue to pray for Bruce and that you would encourage him and be close to his heart. Uh, in Not just today, but in the days to come especially when um, he won't have so much encouragement around him. So, Father, be with him, be close to him. Bless our time now as we work through this uh, continued series and we pray that you would help us come with your spirit and bless this time lord and may your people be helped and encouraged by your word in jesus name amen so these sunday evenings let me just say a word up front about kind of uh what we're doing and and uh in these sunday evening sessions because um some people might be confused this is intentionally designed to be a teaching series and it's not so much of a preaching series or a sermon series so this is very very much didactic it's kind of more classroom like and um and less sanctuary like if you will um and i just wanted to make that clear up front in case anyone's concerned of course our normal pattern as a church is to do expositional preaching through certain certain chunks of scripture where we take little pieces of scripture and we unpack that and explain that but th- this series is not that this is a series that is more lecture oriented in nature So instead of taking a particular passage and kind of unpacking that passage, what we're doing is we're taking a theme, we're taking a topic that is necessary to talk about as a church, and we're just talking about that all throughout Scripture in different places. So I just wanted to say that in case anybody had a question about that. Now, where have we been? Um, If you're just joining us, we're in this series called Bedrock, The Foundations of HBC. And as I said two weeks ago, um, our identity precedes our mission. And that's an important point to make. And it's important to say also that if if a church is going to understand its mission, that is what it's supposed to do, it has to first come to terms with its identity. That is what God has called it to be. And I think that is becoming increasingly clear clear to us. So in other words, what we do flows from who we are. And if we get that backwards, we're messed up. We've got to start with who God has designed us to be, and then we derive our mission from that. So the identity of a church shapes its mission, and that's what this series is all about. It's designed to articulate the biblical identity of the church, which is why I said a couple of weeks ago that it really this series could fit anywhere across culture in the world because we're not talking about in this series, we're not talking about um, an American way of doing church. We're not talking about a style We're talking about an identity that's actually part and parcel of the very way God has designed his church to be, no matter what country or people it comes from. So this is really foundational stuff. Who are we? What is our self-conscious identity? And last time I said that our most fundamental identity could be summarized in this statement. We are a gospel-formed community of worshipers on mission. A gospel-formed community of worshipers on mission. And we have been formed by the gospel. We've been formed into a family, and the family loves one another, and the family worships God, and the family reaches the world. That's why we're tri-directional upward. We're inward. We're outward. And that means that each week we should be focused on these three major activities, gospel worship, vertical, gospel community, which is horizontal and inward, and then gospel mission, which is outward. 
And so we should have that reflected in our church life in some way on a weekly basis. Then I spent the second half talking about the gospel of the kingdom versus the gospel of the cross. And I focused our time on the gospel of the kingdom. And I summarized that with four words, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And we talked about that. Then Pastor Mark came along last week and he kind of bent the nail over on that about the gospel. And he talked about two errors that we fall into if we either overemphasize the gospel of the cross or overemphasize the gospel of the kingdom. And he talked about how those two things, if you overemphasize, for example, the gospel of the cross, it can lead to individualism and sentimentality. Me and Jesus, Lone Ranger Christian idea. Or if you tend to overemphasize the gospel of the kingdom, it can lead to a social political driven agenda to the exclusion of lost souls. So one tends toward liberal Christianity, the other tends toward fundamentalism, and both are errors that we want to avoid. So in a nutshell, we've been saved, as Pastor Mark said last week, not, not only by the gospel, but for the gospel. So we don't just, we don't just sort of, we don't, we don't terminate on ourselves, we go out for the sake of the gospel. Now that's a summary of where we've been. And it can be summarized this way, as I said, that we are striving as a church to be a gospel-centered community of worshipers on mission. In essence, that's who we are. That's who we want to be. Now, for the next five weeks, we're going to talk about five identities that shape us as a church. Okay, and here they are. I'm going to put them up on the screen so you can see them. Five identities that shape us as a church or should shape us as a church. Okay, we are worshipers. We're family we're servants, we're disciples, and we're missionaries. Okay, there they are. Worshippers, family, servants, disciples, and missionaries. Now, obviously, these are not new categories. These are, these are not novel, and certainly we've not made them up. Uh, good men, men like Jeff Vanderstelt and others have articulated similar categories, but they need to be articulated because they're categories and characteristics that should mark all true churches. I mean, these are just foundational identity markers. And so this evening, what I want to do is start with this identity marker of worshipers. Okay? We are worshipers. Um, In fact, all of us are worshipers. Even non-Christians are worshipers. We start life being worshipers. We worship anything and everything we can, we, we, our affections are most called out to. That's the problem. We have a worship dysfunction problem. And until we're regenerated and made new in Christ, we tend to worship all the wrong things. So when we think about, but then as Christians, we obviously worship the God of the Bible. So when I say to you, worship, what do you typically think about? See, in everyday Christian speech, the word worship usually conjures up um, certain ideas like religious activities, singing, praying, listening to sermons, perhaps going to church, your typical Sunday routine. And that's true. That's a significant part of worship. But also, I think we should say that any genuine relationship with God, though, is grounded in a personal life of prayer and praise, which means that private devotion, private devotion is also a crucial aspect of worship. It's not just gathering together on Sundays. And so when we ask the question, how do we define worship? Um, we, there's, there are, there's, this is where there are so much, there's so much that's been written on this issue of worship. 
And so a traditional starting place for most people when they talk about worship or a discussion of what worship is has been to look at etymology of the word worship. And so some some folks will come and they'll say, okay, the word worship comes from the old English word worth-ship. And therefore, the starting place for discussing what worship is is to talk about, you know, the word worth. And so the conclusion is that worship is ascribing to, excuse me, ascribing supreme worth to God. And that's true. That's definitely true. And it's even a very valid way to approach the subject. But obviously more needs to be said than we're ascribing worth to God. We need biblical revelation to give us categories for what worship is. If we're going to ascribe worth to God, then we need the scriptures to be our starting point. In other words, worship doesn't start with making sort of our own subjective assessment of God's worth and then trying to respond to him in a way that seems appropriate. Like I'm just going to sort of envision what God is like and then I'm going to respond to him that way. No, we start with scripture. We let scripture form our understanding of God. So looking at the word worship is helpful, but it's not enough. Okay. So others have said then, okay, well then Christian worship is, we need to add to it that it's tied up with the gathered church merely. So that as we sing and pray and listen to sermons, we're worshiping. And certainly while that's a large and massive part of our worship, worship cannot be restricted to the gathered church alone. It includes not only the the gathered church, but the scattered church, the church that not only gathers on Sunday, but leaves and is in the world Monday through Saturday. So we continue to worship after we leave this place. The, The church does not cease worshiping Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. No, no, we're worshiping, but we're just worshiping in a different way. And... We're worshiping through different means, that is, through our life and what God has called us to do as Christians, as husbands, as fathers, as workmen, as missionaries, as evangelists in our culture. And, and that's why others have come along then and said, okay, well then, if that's true, then worship is a life orientation, right? Worship is, is, is all of our life. The point is we err if we limit Worship to only what happens on sun, during Sunday services. Worship in the Bible is a comprehensive category that describes the Christian's total existence. And again, that's true. It's a very true statement. Harold Best says it this way. He says, we do not go to church to worship, but as continuing worshipers, listen, we gather ourselves to continue our worship. But, not in, but now in the company of brothers and sisters. So it's just kind of a clever way of getting at the same point. We continue our worship when we gather together, not just to worship. So we can't simply define worship as the weekly gathering of the church. And certainly that's not what the New Testament has in mind when it uses the word worship, especially proskuneo. So worship is, is not less than that, but it's far more than that. Okay, it's far more than the gathered church. In fact, as we'll see in a minute, and I wish we had more time. I mean, worship is such a massive category. I mean, there's no way we could talk for 35 minutes about worship and how that's in our identity marker as a church in 35 minutes. I mean, it deserves, you know, really a whole series on worship. If we had more time, I would love to go into the two biblical words that sort of form our understanding of what worship is. Number one, starting in the Old Testament and talking about uh, 
couple of Hebrew words that are very important to our understanding. And then how one of those words was translated then in the Greek translation of the Old Testament as proskuneo and how that word comes over again in the New Testament and forms our understanding of, of worship. And that would be awesome if we could get into that. Um, but we don't have time for that. So for now, I just want to say this, that there is... This is a very interesting thing, but when you get to the New Testament, there's actually very little material in the New Testament that actually deals with corporate worship. You, you may not realize that. You may not think about it that way, but that's a surprise to most people. In fact, when worship gatherings are mentioned in the New Testament, typically the apostles spend very little time talking about uh, worship. Instead, they tend to focus on false worship or idol worship. And almost in every passage where worship comes up, corporate worship, there's this idea of this infiltration of false worship or idol worship. And, and really, there's not much emphasis on the ins and outs of Christian worship. And that's worth noting. In fact, the word proskuneo, which means to bow down, to pay homage, it's, it's a word that, that really incorporates the, the whole idea. Of, it actually means, I mean, literally, quite literally, to kiss toward the word means to fall down and to prostrate oneself to show reverence and respect. And, and as I said, it was the translation of, of, of the same word, but in Hebrew, that meant really essentially the same thing. Shacha. It's the point of prostrating one's self. And here's the interesting thing, that when you study the word proskuneo in the New Testament... And you look at all the occurrences of that word, you find something amazing. The word occurs 173 times in the New Testament. And actually, 60 of those times, it occurs, excuse me, the word occurs, excuse me, 60 times in the New Testament. And 29 times it's used in the Gospels. And 24 times it's used in Revelation. Only one time is it used in the pastoral epistles. That's really, really, that's really interesting and it's very telling too. Because what's happening in the Gospels is that people are proskuneoing in front of Jesus. They're coming and they're bowing down in front of Jesus and paying homage to him. And then all of a sudden you have this huge vacancy where Paul doesn't even use the word except for one time, 1 Corinthians 14, where he's talking about tongues and prophecy. And then it's used again in Revelation, 21 times in Revelation. You say, well, okay, why is proskuneoing happening when Jesus is here and then it's gone? And then all of a sudden in Revelation, when we're thinking about the new earth, proskuneo comes back again. And I think it's very, very telling. If we had time, I would want to talk about really the essence of it is that Jesus, Jesus is, in the Old Testament, the temple was the locale, was the place of worship. And so people would proskuneo there at a place, at a locale. So in John 4, when the woman is at the well, she's standing there and she's, she's, she's talking about where she would worship. And she's putting all of her emphasis on something external, a place, where. And Jesus says, Jesus says to her, the worshiper that I'm looking for is the one who worships in spirit and in truth. In essence, what Jesus is saying is, is when you're in front of me, you proskuneo, you worship and you bow down. The issue is not the place. The issue is not the external. The issue is the internal. And so there's a massive shift in the Bible, really, from 
the the localization of worship is is constantly in the Old Testament is focused on the external ritual and it's restricted to a building in Jerusalem. And Jesus is saying that's over. And now that the new temple, the new location is Jesus. He's where we worship. He is the person that we worship. The temple is not the issue anymore. And so if someone asked you, what's the religious Mecca of Christianity? I wonder what you would say. Would you say Jerusalem? Because if you did, that would be the wrong answer. Jesus is it. Jesus is, is it. Geography is not the essential issue. Something greater than the temple is here. And that's what Jesus is getting at in the New Testament. That's a different series. I wish we had time to really explore that and talk about that. But all that to say this, that doesn't mean that God doesn't care about how we worship him or the locale. He does. He's passionate about his church and he's passionate that his church worship him appropriately. And that's crucial. So David Peterson, in fact, says this. He says, acceptable worship is always a matter of responding to God's initiative in salvation and revelation and doing so in a way that he requires we must discover from God's own revelation what pleases him. So I like that because worship is a response to two things. It's a response to God's salvation and it's a response to God's self-revelation. He's revealing himself and we're responding then in such a way that we are ascribing worth to God. Again, we're looking at the biblical evidence and that's mounting up in our minds and we're saying, wow, look at this God that we are worshiping. This is incredible. And so we do that in two ways. We do that as a gathered church and we do that as a scattered church. And just to be clear, when I say scattered, I mean all of life, everything beyond our weekly gatherings. I mean, when we leave this place, we worship God. So as a gathered church and as a scattered church, people on mission. In other words, worship has two contexts and, and each is sort of shaped by the other. When we worship we, we worship when we gather as God's people in community, that's the church, and we worship when we scatter as God's people in the world, and that's mission. And, and that's what I want to talk about for the remainder of our time is just this difference between gathered and scattered. Let's talk about gathered first. Gathering for the people of God is not an option. That's a command. That's an expectation that we see very clearly in the New Testament. There, there's a temptation to take this sort of worship is all of life approach and, and sort of let that be an excuse to laziness and not gathering with God's people. But we don't have that liberty. God has called us to gather together. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 is a primary example of that. Let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. It's an expectation. And when we come together, the question is, what's the purpose of our gathering? Well, clearly it's to worship God. Okay, well then if that's the case, then what gives our worship shape and focus? Answer, the gospel. Really the Bible, but primarily it's the message of the gospel. The gospel is what shapes our worship. Why? Well, it's a very, it's a very fundamental reason is that we have been formed by the gospel. We have been saved by the gospel. This is the message that has brought us together. So, of course, it's going to be the foundational message of the church. And that's why we're striving to be a gospel-centered church. See, the gospel is that message that makes us God worshipers. 
And so our worship, if it's to be meaningful, if it's to be transformative, it must be gospel-focused worship. That's, that's crucial. So we gather together and we rehearse this story of the gospel week in and week out. And we see this story of the gospel displayed over and over again in the church. We see it displayed in the bread. We see it displayed in the wine and the ordinances. We see it, we hear it in our songs and we hear it in our sermons. We sing it with our lips and we declare it with our mouths. So, and it reminds us, the gospel reminds us, this is why it's so crucial to gather every week because every Sunday we are in desperate need of this reminder. You ready? Here it is. We're in desperate need of the reminder that our soul has an anchor. Praise God. We have an anchor for our faith. And we're reminded of this message every week that we have, our souls have an anchor, an immovable hope that sustains us through life storms. And not only does it sustain us, but it prepares us for our return back into the world as soon as we leave here, which is fraught with many dangers, but it's also filled with many opportunities. And we need to be prepared for that. So with that said, really we could ask two questions and it's this, when the church gathers together, two questions that came to my mind as I was preparing this is, okay, we're talking about worship and the church gathering. So then two questions, what are the elements of Christian worship? What should we be doing? And then secondly, what is the expression of Christian worship? What does it look like? For example, when we worship, well, the elements we've spent I think we know that pretty well, but let's review that for the sake of clarity. When God's people gather together, we're required to do certain things. It's not like we can just sort of just make up our agenda and decide whatever we want to do is kind of cool. No, we go to the Bible and we say, okay, what has God called us to do? And the elements of scripture that scripture prescribed for the gathered corporate service is clear. And theologians call this the elements of corporate worship. And they include the following preaching. We see this, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 to preach the word. It needs to be ready in season and out. Preaching is a main component of Christian worship. Second, the ordinances of baptism in the Lord's Supper. So these are regular ordinances that we should, number one, anticipate and expect. We're expecting another baptism service here in a few weeks. We're very thankful for that. But the point is we, we baptize and we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Number three, prayer. Prayer is a total expectation. And there's different types of prayers. There's ways that we can pray. We certainly have, in First Timothy, we have um, chapter 2. We're told different categories of things that we should be praying about. Um, and so we need to be praying prayers of praise, prayers of confession. We need to, from time to time, we have, pa- we have the pastoral prayer. We pray for kings and all those who are in authority. There's a focus to our prayer. Okay, the fourth thing is reading scripture. First Timothy four thirteen. We are to give attention to the public reading of the scripture. And then five, we have Second Corinthians eight and nine, which are representative of this whole category, financial giving, tithing, giving, contributing to the ongoing um, ministry of the church. And then six is singing. We sing, we praise with our with our lips, we worship God. So these are the clear principles and practices that should guide our corporate worship. And we know that pretty well. So let me talk about the expression of our worship. Okay. And I'm gonna, let's, let's dive into a text here. 
for, for the last few minutes. Just flip over to Psalm 95, please. I just want to talk about the expression of our worship. In this passage, what we have is a clear picture of what worship looks like. And what we see in Psalm 95 is, listen carefully to this. What we see in Psalm 95 is that worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something in such a way that it engages your entire being. I'm going to say that again. Worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something in such a way that it engages your entire being. I say something because the world is ascribing ultimate value to all kinds of things other than God himself. So that, that's what worship is. Non-Christians worship. Let's be really clear about that. All right. But in Psalm 95, what we see is this. We see an engaged being that's ascribing ultimate value to something. I show you from the passage in these verses, the entire being is engaged. Worship engages the mind, it engages the will, and it engages the emotions. Look at verse one. We see the emotions, joyful noise. Notice the phrase "joyful noise." What, what is that? Joy, well, joy is a, an emotion. Joy is an emotion. Come, let us shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. There's something that's excited the emotion there. So it's emotional. In verse 6, what we see is we see the will. Verse 6, he says, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. Where's the will come in? There's a volitional choice to bow down, to bow your knee before God. That's a choice. Let's do that. Let's actually bow down before God. Let's make that choice to do that. And then verses 7 and 8, we see the mind. He says, um, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So, sorry, verse 7. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture. I was looking at the last verse. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. Okay, so what's going on there? We have, we see the mind, today, especially in verse, go down to, um, to de- verse 8, this transition there. He says, today if you hear his voice. What, what's that? That means you're listening to God's word. So the mind is involved. You hear God's voice, and then what do you do? You do something with God's voice. You don't just hear it. So the mind's involved, the will's involved, the emotions are involved, the entire being is involved in worship. Worship engages the mind, the will, the emotions. And this is an important point because it means that if you can come to a Sunday service and if you can go through a Sunday morning ritual without experiencing beauty and joy, without experiencing rationality and reason, or without making a volitional choice to adore God, then you are not worshiping. That's what that means. Worship involves the entire being. That's why you have, you have overemphases like in, in, like for example, certain Pentecostal circles where it's all on the emotion. It's all on the experience. And often it's to the exclusion of rationality. It's to the exclusion of the mind. On the other hand, you can have a really highly sort of liturgical service that's fully engaged in the mind, that's fully engaged in rationalization, but it misses the emotion. And neither one of those is true worship because true worship engages the will, the mind, and the emotion. And so it is crucial that when we come to worship the Lord, we come with that in mind. Second, worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something. We, we actually ascribe ultimate value to God. In this case, it's God. 
verse 1. Notice what he says. He says, sing and shout. Come before him with singing. Why, why do we do that? Sing, shout joyfully to the Lord. Why are we singing? Why are we shouting joyfully to the Lord? Verse 3 gives us the reason. This says it right there. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. That's our motivation. God has declared something about himself, and therefore we are reacting to what he's declared about himself, and it's propelling us to worship him. So we are ascribing something to God. He's a great God. He's a great king. And the same thing happens again between verses 6 and 7. Notice that. Come, let us bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker, for or because he is our God. And we are the sheep of his pasture. We're the sheep under his care. What should motivate your worship? The fact that God's my shepherd. That's awesome. God's my shepherd. I want to worship him. He cares for me tenderly. He loves me. He guides me. He walks with me. He shapes me. He helps me. That makes me want to worship him. So you have motivation here. We're assigning value and worth to God. Notice we're, we're assigning his own value and worth that he's saying about himself, <laughs> which is great. And he gets to do that because he's God. He can say whatever he wants to say about himself. He can praise himself. So the, the psalmist is, what he's doing is he's essentially taking an inventory of the excellencies of God and he's numbering them and he keeps numbering them until there's an explosion of worship in his heart. So just a real clear application is, do you take inventory of God's excellencies? And do you do that regularly? And is it leading you to worship God? I mean, imagine a woman, for example, who has inherited, let's say a woman's inherited um, uh, an amazing piece of jewelry, like a diamond or something. And so she's inherited this diamond and she takes this diamond to a jeweler because she doesn't know how much it's worth. She has an idea that this thing is very costly. So she goes down to a very reputable jeweler and she goes down there. And while she's there, she's standing there and the jeweler, the jeweler is appraising this certain diamond and he's got that little eye thing. I don't know what that is, but he's looking at it. And, and he sees the way that the facets are sort of refracting the light. And he sees a texture to the diamond. And he suddenly, the guy kind of takes a step back and he starts to feel kind of faint. And, 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 and you could tell like he's disturbed at some level emotionally. And, and she's noticing this happening. And, so she, and, and, and he's realizing that this is a very rare and unique piece of jewelry. Out of all the jewels he's ever had, this is the top, and he's totally astounded. And so what happens is that he begins to experience something with his mind, and then now that he knows it with his mind, his emotions are starting to get involved. And when the woman finds out what, what she has, she starts experiencing the same thing, and her emotions start to get involved. And that's what's happening here. The psalmist is starting with a rational understanding of God. He's starting with his thinking. And it starts by looking at who God is and what he's done. And then when he begins to tally all that God is and all that God has done, when he begins to do this and it begins to dawn on him, he erupts with praise. And that's what it does. And so, see, as long as we continue to be unaware of who God is, we will be unaffected by God. We'll be unaffected in our worship. That's why, that's the difference between a limp your life, if it's a limp, or your life, if it's, if it's a full-bore, transformed life, shot through with thanksgiving, joy, and a worshipful heart. 
The guy who limps along is the guy who knows little about God. The guy who runs freely and engages this life and, and pursues God with abandon is the guy who has began to, who's begun to take a, an inventory of all that God is for him and all that God has done. And it begins to overwhelm him and his life is shot through with joy and transformation. And so that's what worship is supposed to do to us. Worship is seeing what God is and his worth. It's an act of ascribing ultimate value to God. And when we do it, it transforms the life of us, of the worshiper. And it'll transform the life of a church. So we're a worshiping community. We're a community of worshipers, which means we should be constantly transformed by this worship. So then he says, essentially says, okay, then why should we worship? And the answer is in verse 3. He says, for the, for, for the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. That's our motivation. Another way to say it is that your whole life is oriented, our whole life, think about this, is oriented towards things that we're already worshiping and ascribing value to. You guys are all ascribing value to certain things other than God. We all are. And so the, the world's not, like I said earlier, divided into people who worship God and people who don't. The world's divided into people who worship the wrong things and people who worship the only proper object of their affection, God, the only true object worthy of worship. So even non-religious people engage in worship. And so practically, this means that every week when we gather together, what we're doing is we're actually transferring our affections from the things of this world to God himself. We're, we're stripping ourselves of our affection to, the, from, uh, to this world and putting it on God. In other words, true worship is not engineering something new. True worship is transferring what's been misappropriated. So all week you've been making poor decisions about appropriating your worship. And when you come to worship Christ with his gathered church on Sunday, you're, you're, re, you're, you're, you're redirecting that worship from things that they should not have been directed to you're redirecting it. And so it's a repositioning of our loyalties and affections from the things of this world to God and his work and, and, and to God, to the God of this world. It's reassigning worth and ultimate value, not to the thing that you love other than God, but to God himself alone. So DA Carson says this, I love it. Worship is the proper response of all moral conscious beings to God, ascribing all honor and worth to their creator God precisely because he is worthy, delightfully so. I love how he adds that at the end, delightfully so. It's a delight, isn't it, to ascribe worship to God? And that's what we're called to do week in and week out. And so that's, the, that's our worship gathered. Now, we can't go into worship scattered, but I want to summarize it this way is that we have a tendency to compartmentalize the gathered church and the scattered church. So we have this divide, the sacred and the secular divide. But, but here's the thing. Once Jesus did his work on the cross and that work was complete, the expectation is that we are to scatter into our neighborhoods and workplaces and homes with the awareness that every moment is an opportunity to worship God, the God who sent us. That, that's part of our worship. And so let me ask you this. What, how about this for a thought? Why don't you tomorrow when you have your breakfast consider that your call to worship? We had a call to worship this morning. Uh, Dwayne did it. Why don't you tomorrow when you sit down with a cup of coffee consider that your call to worship? A cup of coffee and an open Bible. That God is calling you to worship him tomorrow throughout the rest of your day. 
Worship matters because we're always worshiping something. And we're hardwired to worship. But we need to direct that worship to God. And we need to engage passionately in that worship with our life. And this is the problem, is that people have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. That's the problem of Romans. That's the problem of sin and idolatry. In other words, our most fundamental sin is idolatry. It's the treason within us. It's the fact that we're worshiping all the wrong things. See, when sin entered the world, worship did not cease. It was redirected. And suddenly, instead of making much of God, we started making much of man in creation. And so we're, we're all messed up. And then Jesus steps into that story and he pays chiefly for the sin of idolatry. And he's paying for that sin. Jesus is paying for our misdirected worship and he's redirecting it to God alone. And there's just so much that we need to say about scattered worship, but we, we can't. We don't have time. But the, the long and short of it is this, is that the gospel transforms our hearts and lives in such a way that we have new identities as the people of God. We're worshipers, we're disciples, and we're servants. And hear this, and we take that new identity into the world as worshipers, disciples, and servants. We take that new identity into the world as missionaries. We engage a lost world. And, and such a life is a life of sacrifice. And, and every moment is a reminder that we live in a different kingdom with a much greater king than the things of this world that compete for our attention. We have one king that's worthy of all of our worship. And every day we're called to worship him. We're called to worship him by confessing our sins. We're called to worship him by singing and praying and, yes, preaching to ourselves this glorious message of the gospel. In one sense, you could take the elements of worship for corporate worship. You can almost apply them, except for the Lord's Supper and baptism, into your personal life. And you sing, you pray, you, you give yourself a call to worship. You preach the gospel to yourself. And you worship the Lord. And it's the realization of those truths that should lead us to worship. And here's the thing. This kind of true worship will be blessed by the Spirit. And it will become balm for your anxious hearts. And you need that. We all need that. You know what it will do? It will invite you into a story that's way bigger than yourself. And you'll realize that it's a story that revolves around all this sin and pain. But it's also a story that resolves all your fear, all your anxiety, and all your tension. You know why? Because it's resolved your most fundamental problem, which is your sin and separation from God. You're now a child of God. And we learn this kind of worship in community when we gather as the church, but we continue this worship every day as we scatter into the world as God's servants and missionaries. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, again, your word, which is clarifying to us. Thank you for Psalm 95 and the way it teaches us and instructs us about worship. Lord, help us as we continue this worship service and as we continue tomorrow to worship in our own private lives. In Jesus' name, amen.